Okay. How Israel, although they had been recipients of all the blessings, all the revelations of God, they still rejected the Lord consistently. They hardened their hearts against the Lord. And because of that, that whole generation was condemned that we saw in Isaiah chapter 6. So what that does is that raises questions for us, and it raised questions for the people of Israel as well. After 150 years later when they went into captivity, they had serious um, questions about where they stood with God. They had been called to be his witnesses. They had resisted and rebelled and rejected that. And one whole generation under God's judgment had just about been obliterated, passed away. We, we looked last week also that that had happened before um, during the time of the Exodus when as they were delivered out of Egypt with great miracles, signs and wonders and blessings and the presence, revelations from God on Mount Sinai, they heard his voice, they saw all the audiovisual things that represented his presence. And yet, they consistently continued to rebel and when called upon to go into the promised land, they refused to go out of fear and unbelief. And God became angry with them because they had been given so much and still chose their fears and to serve idols instead of serve God. So that whole generation died in the wilderness during that 40 years, wandering. At the same time, God continued to keep his hand upon them and provide for them every day during that 40 years. And he was continuing to, to work in spite of them to raise up a new generation that would go in and possess the land. So now, we had this similar thing taking place with Israel going into captivity in Babylon. Jerusalem destroyed the temple leveled to the ground. Um, priesthood couldn't function. No more sacrifices. No more priesthood. No more king. No more nation. Uh, now there are people who are refugees in a foreign land. And they were afraid that God had abandoned them, had completely forsaken, had rejected them because of the hardness of their heart. It's a question that's raised in the New Testament church. Because in the New Testament, what happens is the people that are beginning to know the Lord uh, at the beginning were all Jewish, but over a period of time, that began to change. And the church became more and more predominantly Gentile. And so they raised the question again. Uh, since they've rejected the Son now, in addition to all these other things, is God finished with Israel? Has He forsaken them and completely abandoned them? And so these were questions that were raised. It was raised in the church because the church was wanting to know how are we to respond. Paul addresses this issue in the book of Romans, chapter 11. And he says, I asked them, did God reject his people? That's the question. It's the question they asked uh, during the wilderness wanderings. It's the question they asked in Isaiah's time and in Jeremiah's time. It's a question the church was asking in Paul's time. Paul answers that question and he says, By no means. 
I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. And so he talks about the scriptures being fulfilled, uh, particularly in Christ. And he's reminding them of Elijah, who thought that he was all alone uh, in his uh, resistance to Ahab and Jezebel. And Elijah felt alone and isolated. He felt, uh, nobody's left but me, and I'm tired, and I'm, I'm ready to quit. And God spoke to him and said, well, wait a minute. I've got 7,000, 7,000 back in Israel who have never bowed the knee to Baal nor kissed his image. And so he was telling Elijah that he wasn't alone and that God always has his remnant. And that was true in every one of these instances that we've spoken about. So he says, verse 5 of Romans 11, So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer by works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened, as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes so that they could not see, ears so that they could not hear, to this very day. And David says, May their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent forever. So, through their response to God's word, God's revelation, um, because they rejected those things, as an act of judgment, God hardened their heart. And so he says, Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. If their transgression means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their fullness bring? And so he says in verse 15, If their rejection is the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? And so he goes on there, and he's talking about the kindness and severity of God. And the summary of this uh, begins in verse 28 of chapter 11 of Romans. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gifts and His call are irrevocable. God's plan and purpose from the beginning of creating a people of God out of Abraham and creating this nation, a covenant nation, was that they would be His witnesses. That's what the calling, that's what the election was for. It wasn't a, a, an election of, of privilege. It wasn't um, an election just so that they could be blessed because God liked them and God chose them and He was going to give them all the good things and none of the bad. It wasn't any of those things. What it was, God says, I have a task. I want to accomplish it through you. And so from the very beginning in Genesis 12, God's will and plan was... I'm going to raise up a nation through you, and through you all the nations of the world will be blessed. You will be the vehicle, the instrument through whom this knowledge of the one true God comes. In other words, you are my witnesses.
So God raised these people to do and to be that. And yet, in Isaiah's day, we see this rejection taking place. And so the judgment of God comes. But even in, through that judgment, God keeps a remnant there. And His call, His gifts, have not changed. When Paul talks about the gifts and calling of God, uh, this word gifts can be applied in three different ways. It can mean the gifts given for spiritual gifts given for ministry. So uh, we have several lists of those, a couple of them in Romans, one in 1 Corinthians. talks about the gifts of the Spirit, uh, wisdom, knowledge, discernment, uh, those kinds of things. These are ministry gifts. Now the same word also apply, applies to the gift of salvation. It's a gift, something that is freely given by God, and those are gifts that God has given to all of us. So it can be the spiritual gifts, it can be the gift of salvation, or it can be the specific gifts given to Israel, uh, which Paul was talking about there in Romans 11. If we look in Romans 9, he's going to give you uh, a brief listing of those. Romans chapter 9. starting with verse 4 and reading through verse 5. The people of Israel, theirs is the adoption as sons. Theirs the divine glory, the covenants, the receiving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. Theirs are the patriarchs, and from them is traced the human ancestry of Christ, who is God over all, forever praised. Amen. So this same word that Paul says the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable applies to these gifts given to Israel. Regardless of what they've done with those gifts, those gifts were freely given. When you freely give something to someone, it's theirs. They can do with it what they want. They can use it. They can abuse it. They can destroy it. They can put it on the shelf and forget about it. But it's theirs because you have freely given them that gift. And that's the way it is with the gifts that God gives. He gives us, entrusts us, endows us with these gifts. But we are responsible and accountable for what we do with them. Nevertheless, the gift is freely given. And he's not going to come and ask for it back. So Paul says the gifts of God are irrevocable. This is why you have very intelligent, talented people who are very, very wicked. They've taken the gifts that God has given them and they are abusing them. And they are accountable. And they will give an account for what they've done with what God has given. But they are free to use them or abuse them. Uh, instead of glorifying God, they can use it to glorify self. And they will be in a, there will be an accounting. Second thing Paul says, not only are the gifts irrevocable, but the calling is irrevocable. This word that he uses for calling is the same word that we, that we can be translated as election or being chosen. It's a calling to salvation. And so this call that God has placed upon a person's life, that call doesn't change. Again, we're responsible for the call that we've received. You can say no. 
You can't say, I'd rather not. But the call is still there. And that doesn't change. So what Paul is saying, talking about um, Israel, is that God has not rejected them. They have rejected God. That doesn't, doesn't negate or take away his plan to use them. And if this generation will not, that generation will be under judgment, but he'll raise up a new one that will. But they will be his instruments because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So he says in chapter 43 of Isaiah, you are my witnesses. That's who you are. You are the witnesses that I have chosen. And you are the ones who will make known who I am. As you go through and you read these things about them being witnesses, what they are consistently being called to witness to is that there's only one God and He is God and Lord of all and the idols are absolutely nothing. And so he's calling these people uh, out of captivity. He's calling them forth to be his witnesses. We're in verse 10 of chapter 43. And what he's done in, in uh, verse 9 is he's called, he's challenging the nations around them to bring their idols and their witnesses to prove what God is saying is true or not. He says, as far as God is concerned, verse 10, you are my witnesses, my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe and understand that I am He. Before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me there is no Savior. I have revealed and saved and proclaimed I am not some foreign God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, that I am He, that I am God. And so he continues this challenge. He says it three times in these uh, chapters 43 and 44. And each time it's a challenge to the idolatry around them. So what does that have to do with us? Uh, that's Israel. God is still going to use them as His witnesses. What about um, the disciples? How good a witness were they? Uh, the challenge, the, the um, admonition there in the book of Isaiah was Israel was God's servant called to be witnesses and they failed in that witness. They failed because of unbelief because they were drawn to idolatry. It was a willful, deliberate, consistent sin that took place over years. And so it brought judgment upon themselves. Now the disciples come along and, and God says to Israel that they are blind and deaf witnesses. So it's like if the crowd over here, when we had the little reenactment of the accident, if the crowd was all standing there with their eyes like, with their hands over their eyes and stuff in their ears, and uh, I can't witness anything. Um, 
And so he says, my witnesses are blind and deaf because they're not taking to heart the things which God has given them. They're not using correctly the things that God has given to and entrusted to them. So in the New Testament, we have the disciples coming along. Which one of the disciples was expecting the resurrection? Which one? None. None. Jesus walks with them for three and a half years. Um, They see him. They hear all the teachings. They saw the miracles. A leper uh, cleansed right before their eyes. Uh, Dead people raised from the dead. Pulling a guy out of the grave after he's been in there for four days. He calls him by name and the guy gets up and walks out. He's not a zombie. He is a living, breathing man. Uh, They saw him walk on water, still the storm, feed 5,000 people. And he told them repeatedly, he's going to die and he's going to rise again. And when it happened, they were the most surprised people on the earth. They were not expecting it. Um, Now their unbelief or their doubts was from a different cause. It wasn't because they were hard-hearted and rejecting him. These were the ones who had committed their lives to following him. These were the ones who believed that he had the words of God and that they were eager to hear. And they walked with him consistently, left their homes and families for three and a half years and walked with him. Uh, went through sufferings of various kinds with him and through different experiences. These were people who were committed to him. But the real message of what it meant for him to be with us, just right over their heads, even though he told them, they did not understand. And there was this veil in front of their eyes because nothing like this had ever happened before and they 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 just missed it. So even though Jesus told them, uh, they could not accept it. So here Jesus is. He's on the cross. And I want want you to understand the context here. The scribes and Pharisees, the, the rabble that crying out for Jesus to be crucified, they're still, they're all there following the procession. They're watching as Jesus is nailed to the cross and, and uh, raised on that cross along with two thieves, criminals. So these three are crucified and they're in the process of dying. Uh, sometimes it happened very quickly. There were instances of some people taking as long as nine days to die. This is why Pilate was so surprised that Jesus had died so quickly. So there they were, hanging on the cross, but the crowd wasn't finished with Jesus yet. Um, Matthew records it, and Luke, the uh, insults and the challenges. Those who passed by were hurling insults and challenges to Jesus, Matthew 27, 40, um, 27, 41. The chief priests, the teachers of the law, the elders were hurling insults at Jesus. Matthew says that the robbers who were crucified with him were mocking him. Um, Luke says that the soldiers joined in that. 
And so you've got this great chorus here of Jesus dying on the cross and all of these people hurling insults and challenges. If you're the Son of God, come down. Uh, you who are going to raise the temple in three days, come down from the cross and we'll believe. Do a miracle. Do something great. Do something here. Although all the things which he had already done. And Jesus knew that it's his death that was going to be salvation. And all those who had committed to following Christ, even a few hours before, had all fled. Uh, Peter had said, because um, Jesus told him he was going to deny him, Peter said, no, no, Lord, you don't know what you're talking about. I am, I'm solid. I'm going to be here. Do you ever notice sometimes when we're committed to what we want, God must be wrong? Or we know better than God? God, I wish you'd do it this way. I, this would be, now's the time. Right now is a good time, God, for you to come. But he's God, not us. So Peter protests and he said, Lord, I will go with you to prison and death. And if everyone else forsakes you, I will never forsake you. And the gospel writer said all the other disciples said the same thing. But in the garden, when their life was on the line, they all ran, every single one of them. So they're at the cross. Uh, possibly one of the disciples, John, was there. But John and Peter had followed at a distance. You know, you don't want to get too close to God because all the condemnation, the ridicule, all of that will splash over on us and we don't want any of that, Right? And what was it that uh, caused Peter so vehemently to deny his Lord and Savior? There was a servant girl. A servant girl. Weren't you with him? <laughs> Not me. Somebody else. It wasn't me. Well, you know, you kind of got a funny accent. Uh, you sound like one of those guys from up there in the north, up there in Nazareth, or maybe Canada. <laughs> one of those funny accents, you know. Uh, Peter says, no it's, no, no, it's not me. I'm just here for the festival. Third time. Didn't we see you in the garden? And it wasn't me. And he called down curses on himself and swore with an oath. I never knew the man. So there were a few women that did follow him. They were at the cross. Were they expecting the resurrection? No. They loved him. They were committed. They were grieving. They were wanting to do for him what little they could do for him. They went to the tomb that early first Sunday morning because they wanted to, to help finish preparation of the body for a proper funeral, a proper burial. It was the, the last thing that they could do to show their love and devotion to him. But they were not expecting a resurrection. None, none, none of the believers accepted, expected the resurrection. None of them really in their hearts believed who he was. But God has a witness. God had a witness there that day. The only person at the cross who expressed faith in Jesus was the thief who was dying with him. 
So here's the context. He's, this thief has been nailed to the cross. He's been jeering and mocking like the others. But somehow in that process, the message got through. And God was not going to let his son die without a proper witness. Now here he is. You've got the context. The soldiers are there. Um, the thief is dying. He's looking over here. Jesus is dying. All these people are mocking all the power people, all the people in authority, all the people who are supposed to know the religious leaders are all condemning and mocking, saying this guy's a fake. This guy's a liar. He's a deceiver. And this man, you know, what's he thinking? Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. That's an appeal. It's also a statement of faith. He's the one man who believed that Jesus could do what he said he could do. Lord, when you come to your kingdom, because I believe it's coming, he's dying. He's looking over here and Jesus is dying. What kind of a faith, a dying man seeing another dying man and believing that he's going to rise again and have the ability to forgive his sins and bring him into his kingdom. Tremendous faith of a dying thief. God had his witness. You are my witnesses. So what happens after the cross? Jesus told him, he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Paradise for them was another name for heaven. If it's an old Persian word, it means an enclosed garden. Paradise does. It's a reference back to the Garden of Eden. And you remember before sin entered into the picture, in the Garden of Eden, God would come in the cool of the day and he would walk with Adam and Eve and they would talk and visit, fellowship and share. Jesus was telling this thief, today there's going to be a restoration of this communion and fellowship this at ease, this peace with God. Today, he said, you're going to be with me in paradise and you're going to be able to walk with God today. So that's what God offered. So it seems like even in the New Testament, the disciples themselves were blind and deaf witnesses to start off with. Not fully seeing, not fully hearing and understanding what Jesus was telling and even misunderstanding what he was doing on their behalf. But after the resurrection, Jesus reinstates them as his witnesses because the gifts and calling of God is without repentance. He knew those he had chosen and he didn't unchoose them because they failed. He doesn't unchoose us because we sometimes stumble and fall. What he does is he comes and picks us up, not excusing the sin, but forgiving and cleansing the sin and changing us from the inside. And then he makes us what he's called us to be. Because none of us can be what God has called us to be. None of us. But he can make us what he calls us to be. Paul says that he is not capable of being, but God makes him capable. 
And that's it. God's calling, as we begin to embrace that calling, He enables us to be what He's called us to be. It's through His grace, through the blood of Christ, through the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so when you move on into the book of Acts, at the, well, at the very end of the Gospel of Luke, and then into the book of Acts, Luke was the author of both. In Luke chapter 24, he's been in the upper room with the disciples. He's, he's telling them that everything that was written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms has been fulfilled. Then he says in verse 45, Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, This is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in His name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And then as you go through the book of Acts, when he starts using this word witnesses, every time, every time it talks about it in the book of Acts, it's talking about witnessing to the fact of the resurrection of Jesus witnessing to the fact of the resurrection of Jesus. And they consistently said, we are eyewitnesses of these events. We are the witness. They were fulfilling the calling and the election using the gifts that God had imparted to them. They were His witnesses. And so God took these people who were filled with fear and doubt and unbelief, um, who chose... When it came to the decision between themselves and God, they chose self, like us. And apart from God's grace, we do the same thing every time. But when God's grace enters into our hearts and lives, then He begins to change us. And the desires of the heart changes. And then the decisions change. So God was using them. We are the witnesses of God today. In our generation, uh, two or three of them represented here. Generation, I mean two or three generations here this morning, each of us is a witness to our own generation and to the generations around us um, because God has gifted us. And Paul says that every person receives gifts from God and we are called. And so those gifts and those calls, that's unchangeable. That's a non-negotiated thing. That's something that has been freely given by God. We don't get to choose the gifts. We don't get to choose um, the circumstances in which those gifts can be used and developed or grow. But we are responsible because He's given every one of us gifts and a call. We are His witnesses. So, we can be a witness like Israel and choose to deny everything that God has given and turn our backs upon Him and blind our eyes and cover our ears. We're still called by His name. We can be like the disciples who, as best we know how, try to follow Him in all that we do, and yet oftentimes when the opportunity is there, uh, you know, somebody may laugh at us. It's not even like they're going to kill us. They just might laugh at us. So, no, no. We're, gonna, we're not going to be a witness. But we are. Or we can be like the thief 
on the cross. Knowing and recognizing him, nothing to lose, can't run away. Say, Lord, when you come to your kingdom, remember me. When we come in that way, Jesus says, you're mine, and I will remember. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for the faith, faith of the thief, who in spite of all the appearances, in spite of all that he saw and heard, knew with a certainty that you were who you claimed to be. Even though he saw you dying, he knew that death had no power over you completely and totally. Lord, help us to have that kind of faith. Regardless of the situation, the circumstances, who's around us, what they're saying or doing, eyes focused on you, trusting and believing that you are who you claim to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.